Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for all that today means, all that is included in today. It's a new year. It's a new time for us to recommit ourselves to you, uh, to be in your word more, uh, to be in communion and prayer with you more, to spend more time with you, to let go of the frivolous, empty things that this, uh, that this world can only give, and to live to glorify you. We thank you for your word, that as we think about the new year and we think about time and we think about how everything in this world changes from year to year, your word and you never change. You are always the same. Your word is always the same. The truth in your word is always the same. It doesn't matter what the culture is. It doesn't matter how much the world rails against it. It doesn't change what the truth is. So, Lord, I pray that we would cling to your truth, that we would anchor our souls to it as we walk into this new year. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In my senior year of high school, uh, my homeroom teacher was an Army veteran, having recently returned home from tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. The United States had invaded Iraq in 2003, about a couple of years before my senior year. Some of you are doing the math real quick, okay? <laughs> and was fully engaged there. Uh, one day, one of my classmates, without much thinking, made a comment about the U.S. being in a time of peace. And I can remember my teacher replying, you think we're in a time of peace? You do know we're in the middle of a war right now, don't you? I remember that thought dawning on me because I hadn't thought much about it, because I was a dumb teenager. You see, World War II America was focused on the wartime effort. Rubber drives, metal drives, gas rations, blackout alerts. But things were apparently so normal for me living in America in 2005 that I had completely forgotten that the country was actually in the middle of a war. Most of us have grown so accustomed to just living normal, everyday lives that we've completely forgotten that we're all still in the middle of a war. A war for our families, a war for our lives, and a war for our souls. Sometimes we see it, and we're seeing it more and more these days. Sometimes we don't, but that doesn't mean it ever went away. This is something we need to keep at the forefront of our minds, as, especially as we start a brand new year today. What in the world do I mean by this? When you're tempted to disobey God in whatever way or follow the way the world does things in any way, here is what is really going on behind the scenes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what's really going on. We're going to be looking further into what the Apostle James says concerning this subject this morning. Firstly, what we have to remember is that our fallen human hearts are constantly in a state of yearning to reform an alliance with the world. 
And what that really means is an alliance with the enemy of our souls. Some of these alliances are obvious, responding in selfish anger when someone frustrates you, celebrating someone else's sin with them, not caring about having an accurate understanding of God's word, having a sexual relationship with someone outside of God's blueprint for marriage, or lying constantly. Some of these things are obvious. We know those are just a few. That's just scratching the surface. We may not always be aware of it, Presenting yourself in any way that is not a witness for Christ. Thinking your sin doesn't affect anyone else. Nor should anyone else refer to what you're doing as sin. Spending way more time on the things of this world than on what you could be doing for God's kingdom. Or frivoling away your finances. On top of that, just because some practice or lifestyle is acceptable in our culture does not in any way mean it's acceptable in God's kingdom. Probably the least obvious alliance with the enemy is when we give in to our pride. That's why giving in to our pride is so dangerous. It's always lurking right there with us threatening to be the one to make the decision for us, but we almost never remember that it's there, that it's right there. These are obviously not exhaustive, but they should give us a realization that we are in the middle of a war and to not fool ourselves into thinking that we're in a time of peace. What sets up what we're looking at today is what James writes in James 4.4, the verse right before our passage this morning. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world equals hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world automatically makes himself an enemy of God. The Apostle James in God's word could not be any clearer. Am I right? In other words, whenever you accept what the world accepts and live in a way that makes complete sense to the world and doesn't confuse it in any way or doesn't make it hate you in any way, you are essentially openly declaring war on God. The enemy is always warring. He doesn't sleep. He is always out to destroy you. First Peter tells us this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is what he's constantly doing. That should not be scary, but it should open our eyes. If the enemy is always out to destroy us and the most useful weapon he has is to use the world to woo us and reform, reform an alliance with us, that means that every second of every day we are in the middle of a war. So what does that mean? We are not to coast. We are not to think that we can be a friend with the world. We, cannot, we are not to think that we can blend in. We are not to think that we do not need daily strengthening through reading God's word, prayer, and a regular joining together with other members of God's army. You want to be a rogue soldier, leaving yourself open to attack? Or do you want to be with the rest of the army of God? 
If you were sent to a remote jungle in a war by yourself, and that jungle was filled with enemy soldiers, and you were told, okay, here you are, figure it out. Figure out how to defeat the enemy by yourself in this environment. Most of us would not last more than a couple of days, right? Maybe a few seconds. Why? Because we all need support. We all need supplies. We all need orders to follow, to know what we're doing. That's why the author of Hebrews writes, as, uh, why the author of Hebrews writes, as we looked at a, a couple weeks ago, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And brothers and sisters, you look around the world around you, this day is drawing nearer and nearer, amen? So that means we should be gathering together more and more regularly for that support and that, that, that mutual encouragement to, to these good works. Yes, if you're a believer in Christ, tell you this, if you are a believer in Christ, you need church. A lot of people are walking around this world. They say, I, I have my faith in Jesus. I don't need church. Yes, you do. You need church. You need to be supported by your brothers and sisters. It's not what your salvation is based on, but you still need it. You need to be supplied by corporate worship. You need to be reminded of your greater purpose on a weekly basis. And you need to be reminded of your, your strategies, the enemy's strategies, and the truth about what's going on. You need to be spurred on to keep going. The truth of the message of this war is not to be scared by the goal of our enemy, which is our destruction. That is his only goal, our destruction. But it's to be aware of what's going on and therefore to be alert. Here's the encouraging truth, however. It is not us versus unseen powers of spiritual darkness. It's not us against unseen powers of spiritual darkness. If it was, I think all of us would raise our hand here in agreement, we're all doomed. We'd have absolutely no chance. But here's the overwhelming good news. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to James chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. It's right after the bigger book of Hebrews. Uh, if you can't find it look it, in the, look it up in your table of contents or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to James chapter 4. We're going to be picking up in verse 5. Uh, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. This is what we read. James chapter, five, uh, James chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Your heavenly father is fighting for your soul. James says right here that there is scripture that says he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Here's the problem. That verse doesn't exist. 
I spent some time with cross-references and search engines and commentaries trying to find that verse before I realized it's nowhere in the Bible. So what is James talking about? The best explanation is that James is referring to both a general characteristic of God found throughout the Old Testament and therefore scriptures, which is the only scripture James readers would have had at that point and in setting up for what he will say next in verse 6. The characteristic of God that's found throughout the Old Testament scriptures that James is referring to is found in Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 nestled within the list of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments God's people were not to live their lives for anything other than God who is the only one who could bring fulfillment into their lives so God tells the nation of Israel, I am jealous for you. Think of it this way. Wouldn't you want your significant other to be jealous for you? Because what would that mean? If they were jealous for you, what would that, if they thought your heart wasn't completely theirs and was jealous, what would that mean? That they loved you fiercely and greatly desire you to love them back just as much. Now that's a limited, fallen human example, but it's the same with God. That is a tremendous truth, isn't it? That is a tremendous truth. God loved you so much that he was willing to become a man and suffer an excruciating death for you. Not only that, but he loves you so much that he comforts you in every affliction, that he gives you peace in the darkest night, and he promises to never, ever leave you, nor forsake you, nor give you up. And because of that, God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us on our own in this war. He fiercely desires for us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because of that, God fights for us. He will not leave us alone. He will not leave us to ourselves. He will not give up on us. Because of that, God, our general, gives us a battle plan to be victorious in this war. Even though the world and its ruler, our enemy, is strong, God is infinitely stronger. Even though the world is loud, God is louder. Here is our secret weapon for victory. Verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our secret weapon for victory is God's grace over us. That's our secret weapon. We are powerless we have no hope of fighting the world and the enemy on our own at all. And because of that, we should give up. 
Some of you may think, well, that is completely opposite of what I thought he was going to say. We should give up. We should surrender. But it's who we surrender to that makes all the difference. We can only have victory if we surrender to God's grace. God's grace is his power that we do not deserve in any form or fashion. That realization goes hand in hand with humility. Again, along with everything else in James, it all comes back to humility. It all comes back to the realization that without God, we are nothing and have nothing. Our name tag should not have our name on it. It should have God's name on it. Everything we are and have, we owe to God's grace over us. Pride says, I have it all together. Pride says, I'm good with God, even though we both know I'm not following him completely. Pride says, God understands why I'm only living half-heartedly for him. God knows. God understands. God gets my heart. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you said that? Those are words of surrender, but they're words of surrender to the enemy. Once you take your life into your own hands, your morality into your own hands, and your purpose into your own hands, you surrender to the enemy. That's why James says, God gives a greater grace, a greater power than anything the world has to offer. And that power is this. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the verse that James sets up for in verse 4, this reference to Proverbs 3.34. Or verse 6, rather, this reference to Proverbs 3.34. That word opposed, it's been noted, is a military term. Look at that. Verse 6, God is opposed. It's a military term meaning to battle against. No wonder... Then, when we cave into our pride that it's a one-way street to the enemy, here's why. When you live according to your pride, you have two forces working on you. You have the world calling out to you, and you have God battling against you. You want God battling against you? I don't think any one of us wants that. Living according to your pride is the quickest way to fail and the quickest way to be defeated. Knowing that you can only rely upon God's grace and God's power in your life is the only way to succeed. And that requires humility. It absolutely requires it. Humility says, I can't fight this war on my own. I know my human heart is weak. I know my human heart will always seek an alliance with the world. I know that my human heart, as God's word says, is deceptive above all else. I need God. I need him to show me what the truth is. I need him to show it to me in his word. 
I need His power to fight in this war. That's why James outright says next in verse 7, Submit therefore to God. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A lot of us have memorized that verse. It's a very famous verse. It's very clear in this verse. Submit to God if you want to have victory in this unseen spiritual war. You cannot sit out of this war. You are not somehow excused out of this war. Like a note out of gym class. You're not excused out of this war. Every human being who has ever lived has been in this war. It's only a matter of whose side they're fighting on. It's only a matter of whose side they're fighting on. If you want to be on the winning side, God's side, you cannot sit on the fence nor think you have time to think on it or somehow opt out of this war. None of those are actual options or possibilities. You must submit to God's power and God's power alone. Remember, I said there are only two sides to this war. You can't sit on the bench. You're in the game. You're in the war. There are only two sides to it. If you submit to God, who are you then declaring open war on? Satan. You cannot fight for both sides. You cannot just sort of be there in the outfield chasing butterflies. You are either fighting for the enemy or you're fighting for God. Now, those are the only two options in this battle, in this war. You cannot... If you fight for God, you have given up any sort of allegiance to the enemy. If you fight for God, you've given up any sort of allegiance to the enemy. You cannot leave God's service to sneak over to the enemy's side under cover of night for a fun night. When you submit to God, you are God's. And you are making a statement to the other side. You are saying, Satan, you do not have any part of me anymore. I am not associating with you or your deceptions or your alliances with the world. This is exactly what James says next in verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's been pointed out that the word resist here literally means to take a stand against. That's what this word means. To take a stand against. Contrary to popular belief, this verse does not mean that you are to resist the devil on your own or in your own power. It simply means that each of us needs to make a decision in this war. Are you submitting to the world and its ruler and therefore taking a stand against God? Or are you submitting to God and therefore taking a stand against the enemy? Are you saying... I'm good with one foot in God's camp and the other in the world's, or are you saying I'm completely God's and therefore am not having anything to do with the world's camp? It's all good to know who's declaring war on who and what the battle plan is, but when you're in the heat of the battle, you need to know what to actually do. A general could say, take that hill. That's the battle plan. That's what we're doing. 
But knowing what to do to actually fight to get there is a whole different matter. And the most important one, the truth is this. In order to win the war, you must lose. Say what? In order to win the war, you must lose. You must lose yourself. You must lose your pride. You must lose your desire for this world and everything, all the emptiness, all the pettiness it offers. And by willfully giving everything up, you gain everything in return. James puts it this way, verses 8 through 9. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Some of you are saying, how is this a New Year's message here? You might say, well, that's weird. I thought God wanted me to be happy. I thought God wanted me to be joyful in him. He wants you to be joyful, yes. But in order for that to happen, a lot of things need to be removed. When God prunes you, does it feel good? No. When God prunes you, it hurts, right? You think, I, I pruned my, bushes, my rose bushes the other day to winterize them. You think they were sitting there, oh, this is silly. But you think they were sitting there thinking, oh, this is great, thank you. No, it hurt. It hurts to get things pruned off of you. When you repent of things, it hurts. It says no to your pride, and it says yes to God's healing. Repentance brings tears. That's the way it's supposed to be. It admits to God and perhaps to someone else that you've been selfish. It admits to God and perhaps someone else that you've been prideful. You know what that does? It gives up pride. It gives up selfishness. It surrenders to humility. And that's why it hurts. That's why it's painful. That's why it brings mourning and weeping. Really digging out parts of yourself directly connected to your pride hurts. But it's the best type of pain. A lot of kind of surgeries, even so-called common ones like an appendectomy, involve the removal of something from your body. See the removal of a tumor or a problematic organ or a toxin-filled appendix or something else. But it's something that is harming and destroying your body. It needs to be removed. But in the process of that surgery, along with the recovery process, you're not all of a sudden feeling incredible, aren't you? are you? No, not at all. It hurts. You're in pain. It takes time to heal. There are tears until the healing process is completed. When you repent of your pride, it hurts. 
Because God is removing that part of you directly connected to your pride. And there's mourning and there's weeping and there's gloom because it hurts. You realize how sinful you really are. How poisoned your heart really is and how prideful you really are. But when that pride is repented of, that pride is removed and there is a wound there, the good news is that it's the first step towards healing. There's a wound there, but it's the first step towards true healing. Winning the war means surrendering to God's surgical removal of your different points of pride. That will set you down the road to healing and to victory. Drawing near to God accomplishes two things directly connected to this surgery. Let's use another example. Say you've been in a battle that involved shrapnel and you took a direct hit. You would want as much of it to be removed as possible, but you can't start approaching the surgical tent and yell from 200 feet away to the surgeon, okay, I'm ready for you to remove the shrapnel from my body. First of all, you have no idea the extent of the injuries you've sustained, let alone the surgeon. He has no idea the extent of the injuries you've sustained. You must draw near to the surgeon, again, for two reasons. Firstly, so you can know the extent of your wounds, which will cause mourning and weeping and gloom because you're realizing how bad your situation really is. And secondly, so the surgeon can remove as much of it as possible which again will cause weeping and mourning and gloom. But when it's over and you've been given time to heal, you will be made whole. Winning the war means allowing God to remove pride from you. That's what it means. Winning the war means, equals, allowing God to remove pride from you. It means to let God remove sin from you. It means to let God remove something that is connected to the world and is not good for you. It means to let God remove something or someone who is a bad influence over you. It means to tell God, I'm a sinful person. I'm not well. Please remove what needs to be removed from me and start the process of healing in me. It means to tell God, Lord, I'm weak. I cannot fight these battles of temptation or depression or discouragement or guilt or desire for the world on my own. I need your power. I need to ask you for your power on a second-by-second basis recognizing the war I'm constantly in and knowing I can only win by you giving me your power. That's what James means when he says in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. God's power comes from humbling yourself before him and him alone. You might be fighting intense battles over temptation. You have to remember that you are not perfect and you will fail, but God's grace is stronger. 
That's not to say that you use that as an excuse to continue in it. What that means is knowing that what you're struggling with is sin. You know that, but it has no power over you. What it means is knowing that God is changing you, and it's a process. What it means is that in the middle of that temptation, declaring to God, I am not giving in to my selfishness. I surrender myself to God and therefore take a stand against the enemy by relying on God's power. It means that when you know a a situation is going to arise, when you will be tempted in that area, preparing yourself for that battle and asking God for his strength right then and there to go into that battle. You might be fighting intense battles over depression and discouragement. Rest assured, you are not alone. It's not just you. Everyone's dealing with this. The enemy wants to keep you in darkness. The enemy wants you to think you're alone in this. But God tells us there is no darkness in God. There is only light. 1 John 1.5 tells us, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. You may already know what is causing your depression. Continue to seek help in treating that depression and continue to seek God's help and God's healing in that. Your physical body is directly connected to your spiritual body. That's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul stresses so much to treat your body as exactly what it is is to believers, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your physical health is directly connected to your mental and your emotional and your spiritual health. What are you eating? What are you drinking? Are you physically active? The answers to these questions have a direct connection to your depression. People whose answers involve mostly processed, prepackaged, chemical, additive, preservative-filled food and drinks with artificial colors and flavors or alcohol, along with little exercise, are overwhelmingly more depressed than those who eat as naturally as possible. There's your New Year's advice. Your depression may hinge on a certain person and the poisonous influence they have over you. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived by them or anybody else. Bad company corrupts good morals. They have a bad influence over you. If you are not married to that person, it's probably time to distance yourself from that person while still trying to be as Christ-likely loving towards them. If you are married to that person, seeking Christian counseling either for yourself or for you and your spouse is a very good idea. Ultimately, depression is a spiritual war against the kingdom of darkness. Remember, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the unseen world. We fight against the kingdom of darkness. In all of these ways, you're recognizing that something's wrong and that you need to make some changes. What does that require? That requires, dun da da, humility. Pride says that you can get through it on your own and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Humility says that you can't and that you need help. 
Humility says that you need God to change you and to empower you and to transform you to give you that victory. And that is what will save you in this war. Our salvation is based on God's grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as having paid for our sin. And then these everyday victories are based on relying on God's power and God's healing and humbling ourselves before him. These are only a couple of ways the enemy tries to defeat us. For the believer in Christ, there are many, many ways that the enemy tries to defeat us. But that's why Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the multiple, plural, schemes of the devil. That's what these different attacks are. Schemes and deceptions to blind us so that we turn our focus off of our only path to victory. They may take different forms, but they're all the same attack to make us forget where our victory comes from, and that's by drawing near to God and humbling ourselves before him. That's by knowing that we are weak and we need help from him. That's by crying out to him for his power to overcome these things in our lives that the enemy tries to destroy us with. I want to close this morning before we come before the Lord's table by reading the last verse in our passage this morning again. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You will have victory. You will overcome. And you will win by losing yourself and humbling yourself before God. Then he will be the one to exalt you and lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very powerful words in your word. We know that your word never changes. We're entering into a new year, 2023, but that doesn't mean anything when it comes to your word. Your word is still timeless. It is still true. It is still power. It is our life. So Lord, I pray that we would take this battle plan with us as we leave this place today into this new year. That we would repent of pride repent of selfishness, and humble ourselves before you and look to you and your grace and your power and your healing to exalt us. That's the battle plan. May we stick to it as your children and as the army of God. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.